White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms and institutions for contemporary art. Visit us online at whitehotmagazine.com and follow us on social media. Hello, this is Brian Leo, and I am sitting here with the artist and um, would you be called a journalist also? Provocateur. Provocateur <laughs> Lauren Monk. So that's uh, L-O-R-E-N-M-U-N-K. That's correct. And uh, today is February 3rd, 2024. Things are flying by, right? As I guess as usual. Um, and Lauren is uh, a fantastic painter in New York City and, and a great supporter of uh, other artists, I think, via your uh, YouTube. Yeah, your yes. YouTube. Um, what? So you you go by another name called uh, J- your moniker is James Calm. James Calm. That's explain correct. that a little bit. Well, first of all, let me say thank you to the uh, White Hot uh, podcast staff. It's fantastic to be here on top of the White Hot skyscraper here in downtown Manhattan and walking through all of the studios and seeing the hundreds and hundreds of people that are working day and night to keep White Hot going. It's great. This is a, <laughs> a worldwide enterprise. Um, yeah, okay, so, uh, well, I'm Lauren Monk, also and, known as James Calm. You asked me what, why I use a moniker. Um, well, K-A-L-M is actually short for my wife's name and my name. So her name is Kate Agablick and my name is Lauren Monk. So every time I use the name, I'm sort of honoring her because she is, you know, the long-sacrificing wife who has supported me for all this. And uh, every time I do a YouTube report, I always end up, uh, ended up with, thank you, Kate. Uh, I think the other reason is that um, I've been in New York long enough to know that... Um, Boy, if you don't make it, if you're not a superstar, by the time you're about 35, people just sort of ignore you and uh, won't even talk to you or pay attention to what you're doing. So uh, I guess it was probably about 25 years ago or something, I decided I was going because I'd kind of reached that age limit and I hadn't become the next Jeff Coons or the next um, Ashley Bickerton or whoever you know you could look at. that's an amazing uh, thought. I mean, I mean, yeah, like I'm 46 now and uh, 47 maybe, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. I mean, like, yeah, when you're in your 20s and 30s and people are like buying your work a lot and stuff and like, I don't know. Yeah, but like you, you push through and you just keep going. and That's right. And the other part to it was that um, I'd actually taken a break from the art world. I had a couple of kids and, um, you know, as much as I love art and I love uh, supporting the art community, you've got to have your priorities and my family has always been my number one priority so I kind of dropped out of the art scene for about 10 or 12 years I was a soccer dad driving up and down the East Coast going to soccer tournaments and practice and all that stuff although I still spent a lot of time painting in the studio and visiting shows Mm -hmm. Uh, about the same time my wife said you don't exist anymore you got to figure out something to do to to make yourself relevant in the scene and at that point, I um, was talking with someone, and it's a mutual friend of ours, Chris Chambers, who had started writing for a little new magazine newspaper. It was part of it was online called New York Arts, run by a guy named Abraham Lubelski. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, gee, Abraham's always looking for writing. You know, maybe you could start doing some writing. And I said, well, that would be a, way, a great way to sort of get my name out there, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be known as a, an artist, a failed artist that now writes. So part of the James Calm thing was coming up with a, a new name that I could use. And for six or seven years, I was totally anonymous. Nobody knew that Lauren Monk was James Calm, and I kept it that way intentionally. And I wrote a lot of articles. I think I probably wrote at least 100 articles for... Uh, New York Arts, and then I went over and was writing for uh, the Brooklyn Rail, which I still occasionally do things for them, and I'm a big supporter of the Brooklyn Rail, Fong Bui, and the the whole crew there. I love them. They're great people. Anyway, so uh, that was how I started out with the James Conn thing, and then in 2006, 
probably within about six or eight months after YouTube went online, my kids introduced me to it and said, gee, Dad, this is an interesting thing. They got video. And so I started watching YouTube, and I realized, gosh, you could do something with that in the art world, but how, what would you do? What would you, how would you put that out there? And I didn't know anything about producing videos or editing videos or anything like that. So I, I did have a digital camera. And I had a little program in my old computer that was kind of a simple, what was it called, Premiere? Anyway, mm -hmm. very editing. simple editing thing. So I started editing videos and putting them online. And, um, of course, it was a totally thankless job, and everybody thought I was an idiot and a moron. And uh, and all, the people that didn't think of that didn't understand what I was doing or didn't even pay attention to me. So in that way, that was good. So I just kept working at it, and as uh, technology evolved, I started getting a little better camera, I got a little better computer, I got better programs to edit with, and, um, and the, but I just kept working at it and um, made it a point of trying to put up at least two videos a week. So uh, over the period, now at, at this point it's been about 18 years, going on 19 years of doing videos, and I have two channels. And um, I think altogether I've got somewhere over 1,600 programs altogether just on YouTube. And that doesn't include other shorter versions of the videos that are on some of the things on Facebook and Instagram and other places. All so right. that's kind of the James Calm story. And most recently, uh, Jerry Saltz had posted uh, and shared your uh, yes. ordeal something <laughs> happened uh, something happened with your YouTube channel I have could you please elaborate yes well I'm actually I should be giving you all a warning about what is happening what will be happening in the future because as people have become more reliant on Instagram Facebook Twitter YouTube all of those public platforms um, and you could consider this a conspiracy theory, although every time I come out with things and people say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, you, a few years go by and they go, you were right on point, man. How did you know that was going to happen? Um, so what ended up happening to me is that um, I guess it was December 20th, something like that, 21st. I was actually come, coming home from a Christmas party with my wife. We're getting ready to go to bed. I happened to check my email on my phone and I saw a little email that said something like dear James Com, this is the YouTube team telling you that we unfortunately your YouTube channel has violated um, community standards for nudity and sexual content and we have taken your your channel down um, you can appeal it blah 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 but probably you know we know you're disappointed and that's it so you I took a couple of days, I thought about it. I talked to my son, who's a producer out in California and consults with me in certain things and um, talked with Kate and did some research. And um, I made my appeal. I thought it was a very good appeal. Of course, they've got a, letter, a word limit on there, so you have to make a really good appeal in something like less than 250 words. So I did the best I could. And of course, within like two hours, I get a response back saying, gee, we know that you're disappointed, but we're denying your appeal. So basically, what does this mean? It means that your channel is gone forever. And that okay. channel was called the James Com Report? It is. The, that was the James Com Report. That was the, the main one. The other channel that I have is called Rough Cuts, and that's probably started about three or four years after the James Com Report. Anyway, um, so I was devastated. I had 18 years of videos, like I said, over 600 maybe more than that at this point, a lot. And beyond just my own personal um, time and interest, there was a real archive there that goes back to 2006, mm -hmm. recording exhibitions by a lot of very important people and a lot of un unimportant people, but it's, really, it's a real kind of a cross-section of the New York art scene. Anyway, I was shattered. I felt terrible. And then when they started doing research, you know, and the great thing about YouTube is <laughs> they can totally shut you down and do all this other stuff. But then there's always going to be YouTube tutorials about how you can come back from this. Okay. So I probably spent the next three or four days 
hours every day watching these videos of how you come back. And also, um, YouTube has a lot of its own content that they put out there, and they theoretically they have standards. They've got what they call the um, educational, documentary, scientific, and artistic exception to the, the standard community um, standards. So I went and I had to study that, and I literally had to take every paragraph that is that appears in these particular tutorials, and I had to study that. And basically what they say is that they don't censor everything. They actually have exceptions for, like we're saying, fine art, scientific things. You know, they were talking about, you know, we have scientists that are doing work on syphilis in, in Africa, and so you're in there and you're, you're doing videos of people's Genitals. Genitals, but it's it's done. It's not done in a salacious, uh, pornographic way. This is actually done in a very high-minded, scientific way, and that's kind of what I thought I was doing. Although, you know, let's face it, you you get into the New York art scene, and you don't have to dig very deep before you come into the kind of the salacious, transgressive area of the art world. But even so. I wonder what specifically it was. Like, I mean, what, what do you have anything in particular? Yeah, I've got I mean, lots of really <laughs> that had some nudity. Was it like some performance art space or like? Well, to tell you the truth, I and or just maybe just two D work, yeah, or sculptures. I have um, I've been putting up things for many years, and what generally had been happening over the years is they would give you a little notice that would say something like, "We have reviewed the content of this, and we have found that it's not." Um, acceptable for people under 18, so we're putting it behind an age wall, an age barrier, which means you can watch it if you're over 18. And I always thought, that's great. You know, they have various um, marks. They have various yeah. ding marks that they can give your channel for various things. And if you if you ding them, and it's not just about sex and nudity. There are all kinds of things, misinformation, mm -hmm. scams, uh, spam, mm -hmm. um, bad language, things like that, threatening people, bullying people. There, there are a whole gamut of various things that they can take down your channel for. When I look through the, the list of all the various things, you know, people selling cryptocurrency, you know, retirees and taking away their pension to buy, well, to even buy Bitcoin. Even stuff. recently, just like two days ago, three Absolutely. days ago, right, with, with Mark Zuckerberg, the guy from That's Snapchat right. and TikTok, right? Like what, I mean. Absolutely. And when I looked at the list of all those things, I'm thinking, gee, I'm actually pretty lucky. I'm in like a very elite group. If I could take off for like nudity and sexual content, that, that sounds kind of good from my aspect compared to the other stuff. Yeah. Anyway, um, so it was basically, you can get reach out. Funny enough, it's like if you want to reach out to mostly a lot of people are saying, you know, this is all baloney. This is not being decided by human beings. This is all being done by AI and algorithms. So these people, no human being has probably even seen anything, and they, they probably have mm -hmm. algorithms that can look at a picture, a video picture, and say, oh, look, there is a nipple, there is a no penis, lie. there's a this, there's a that. And they don't distinguish between whether this is art, pornography, science, or whatever. They just clamp down and, and just shut down your channel. Okay, so basically what I ended up having to do was I had to go onto, the, onto Twitter. I had to approach a group of people called the Team YouTube, and I had to approach them and start asking them questions. I think ultimately what ended up turning the tide was that between Jerry Saltz and him asking his, I don't know how many followers he has on Instagram, mm -hmm. but like tens of thousands, mm -hmm. maybe hundreds of thousands, asking them to send letters and stuff to YouTube. And also, Back in 2011 or 12, I was actually on the front page of the cultural section of the New York Times, and there's a picture of me in the studio, and I'm moving paintings around, but the headline of the article was, YouTube gives New York's uh, gallery tours via Lauren Monk and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, mm -hmm. so talk about primo advertising for YouTube. I sent that to them via Twitter. And within about three or four hours after them looking at that and going, oh, my God, this looks this looks really good. But if it's bad and he goes back to the New York Times and said, 
gee, you featured me 10 years ago on this article, and now they, they've taken me down and shut down the channel, which is also a very good um, promoter for the tourist industry and the art industry of New York. That's not going to look good for YouTube. And between that and Jerry Saltz and his plea, and he wrote a very, and Jerry is, you know, God bless him. He's a very supportive person, and he's also in several, <laughs> he's a major supporting character in the, in the video program. So between all those guys, we got all squared away. I'm back in business. I was out doing some recording, so nice. we're going to keep going with that. That's fantastic. Wow. So, um, I, yeah, so I had met you as James Com. I, I didn't even know you were a painter. So this is back in 2004 yes. when uh, the Fountain Art Fair was happening at, uh, during the Armory Show on the, the West right. Side Highway. I think it was, um, well, Kapla Kesting Fine Art, Leo Kesting, um, McCade Wells Gallery, and Front Room. Yes, three, three Williamsburg galleries. That, and I think uh, that was actually the first um, James Com report, or one of the very first James Com reports. And actually, you had re I mean, th I got to thank you because you included me. You included my name, and you said something about my paintings in the Brooklyn Rail in 2004. It was an article called All's Fair. And yes. You said that I had some funky paintings. So I always, uh, you know, that's that's. You know, I'm proud of it. <laughs> Thank you for uh, <laughs> just that. don't put it on your epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, <clears throat> you know, as I said, I've been I've been an artist in New York for forty some odd years, mm -hmm. and one of the things it took me a long time to learn, but one of the things, one of the most valuable and important things that I learned, eventually I did learn, was that your value to the community is based on what you can do for the community and the other people in the community and who you support in the community. And in a lot of ways, the, the art world in New York, in your town, wherever it could be, you could be in any, any place where you've got a community of artists. It's like a family. And of course, you want to help your family and take care of your family and protect your family and promote your family and, and be nice and, um, and recognize good things, bad things, interesting things, and um, that was one of the reasons that I started doing the Calm Report is I, I saw a lot of work happening. I realized I was very lucky to be in New York, also to be aware of what's going on because there are a lot of people that are in the art world and they're so isolated from everything. They're kind of in their own studio. They're totally focused on themselves and their problems and, you know, getting ahead for themselves, and I, and I realized that's where I was for a long time. But I wanted to, you know, grow up and, and be someone who was out there helping people and uh, trying to get the word out because that's, I think, is an important part of what being an artist is, is getting people to look at the work, talk about the work. And like I said, could be good, could be bad, could be interesting, but acknowledging and talking about it is the important part. I agree. Yeah, it's fantastic. And... Um... I don't know. I thought of this quote uh, from Joan Semmel. She was my painting teacher at Rutgers, and she said something Great like, uh, "If you don't go to other people's shows, how do you expect them to go to your show?" That's right. Yeah, so something that's, that's exactly right. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I've seen you around town from yeah everywhere. I mean, in Bushwick, Chelsea, Lowry, well, that's everywhere. You're just you know. We could talk years. a little. We could talk a little bit about my painting practice. Yeah. So you were uh, you're from Salt Lake City, Utah. That's right. And um, you came here in the '80s or late '70s. I came here in 1979 to go to school at the Art Students League on the GI Bill. I uh, studied there with a guy named Knox Martin. Um, he influenced me a lot. Uh, stayed there at the league for a couple of years, and then uh, I actually met a very young, wonderful, beautiful woman. We moved in together into a loft in Brooklyn. We're still there. Um, but and the painting, you know, thing has changed a lot. I was doing a lot of uh, paintings of um, local homeboys, as I used to call them. I got involved in some ideas about. Well, during the 80s, the East Village was a big happening scene. I kind of got involved in what ended up becoming part of what was known as the kitsch art movement, which was, I guess, would be kind of a, the East Village, an East Village version of neo-expressionism. But it was much more, it was also kind of related to the pattern decorative movement. And um, there were some pretty well-known artists. Rhonda Zwillinger was known for that. And... Um, 
some, I guess Other in the art history classes, when they say kitsch, we think of like Jeff Koons and when, you know, the neo-expressionists, you think of like yes. Francesco Clemente maybe or? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I was dealing with was, had a lot of shiny elements in it. Um, glitter, mosaic, mirror, gold leaf, um, plastic, a lot of that stuff. And um, you find that there's a whole aesthetic just dealing with that kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. in a certain way, it was, kind of, it was kind of transgressive because this is also, along with neo-expressionism, this is one of those things that was kind of looking at minimalism and conceptualism and going, that stuff is just so dry and so old. I mean, we've been doing nothing but conceptual art or, or minimalism for the last 10 or 12 years. It's just, it's tired. So people were looking for new things to do, and, and Kitsch became one of them. But after a while, I, I, got, I got tired of that mm -hmm. and moved on to other things. And um, getting back to what we're talking about with the you seeing me all over in these various neighborhoods, now what a lot of the work that I've been doing is is dealing with those neighborhoods mm -hmm. and the artist communities that are forming within those neighborhoods. So... <clears throat> In a certain way, there's kind of a conceptual art aspect to that as well, mm -hmm. in that, in a certain way, you could say it's kind of like a Duchampian ready-made, except that rather than just being a bottle rack or a bicycle wheel on a stool, I'm looking at the entire community of artists, and I have to concentrate on New York because it would be <laughs> too, too, I'd be spread too thin if I was going to go and do London or LA mm -hmm. or something like that. And I love New York. And it's, it's my town, so I've concentrated on New York, although I have done maps of other places. Mm -hmm. And um, What year did you uh, transition into the, the, your, the work that you produce now, the maps? Like, yeah, uh, okay, like, that's a story unto itself. I was, I was transitioning into some other... <laughs> I'm a transition. I'm in transition. I um, started doing that probably about the time I turned 50, and I just, because I'd been doing the other things for many years, um, I was talking about the fact that I'd kind of stepped back from the art world to raise the family. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not young and sexy and available and all these other things, dealers are not going to look at you. So at that point, I said, you know, I should, you know, and the other work took, you know, it was very tedious and time consuming and stressful and and I had European dealers that were still selling it and things like that, but I decided I wanted to do stuff that I was interested in. And it took me about six months or more just to say, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, what, what do I really love? I love art history. I love the New York art community. But what are you going to do with that? And then I started thinking about um, how would one turn that into painting somehow? And I decided, gee, I could make maps. That would be interesting. So there were a couple of things that, about that is that I had actually been a Boy Scout when I was a kid, and I, I'd learned to read maps, and I actually had to give some courses on maps. When I was in the military, I, I worked for a unit called the Radiological Hygiene Activity Europe, and one of our missions was to, if there was a radiological accident of some kind, say you have a, a B-52 that's got a nuclear bomb on there and uh, the plane crashes somewhere, they would send us in and we would have all these special detectors that would sort of, we would set up and we would try to plot if there was contamination and where the contamination would go. So along with that, you'd have to be able to read maps and chart maps out there so we'd be able to give this information to the local authorities. So I had to be pretty sharp about reading maps with that kind of stuff. Anyway, the other side to it was that um, one of my jobs when I was first got to New York was I was driving the delivery truck for Utrecht Linens. And um, I kept a list of where all these various artists that we'd make deliveries to. So I would be making deliveries to people like Sandro Kia, Julian Schnabel, James Havard, uh, gosh, a lot of people, Solowit, some other people who were on the Bowery, Peter Dean, a person I loved. Uh, but I kept the lists. So when I started doing the maps, I already had kind of a basic list of at least 50 or 60 artists. So I started doing a couple of maps. That's also about the same time that the Williamsburg art scene started to take off. So I thought, you know, 
this would be very interesting to start in a place like Williamsburg that is virgin territory and just sort of map the, the growth of a place like that of a community over a period of time. I felt like I was a little um, zoologist or something, was looking at a little estuarial pond and just saying, gee, let's see what evolves over the next five years or ten years in this little pond because in a certain way that would relate to what's happening in the ocean. So I spent a lot of time running around Williamsburg, making notes, going to gallery openings, visiting studios, keeping track of all these names, and um, just building a database. And, and I just I kept building it into maps. The maps started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And as a matter of fact, every time I do a map, I have <laughs> I finished a map, well, a couple of years ago. But these maps sometimes take three or four or five years to get finished. Wow. I, I finished a Soho map. And of course, someone came over to me and they said, well, that's great, but what about so-and-so and so-and-so? And, you know, and you didn't put me in the map. And I have to look at them and take them by the hand and say, it's okay. It's okay. You will be on the map. There's going to be a bigger map. There'll be a bigger map. And eventually, I'll be making maps that are tw twice the size as the actual the area that I'm mapping because there's so damn much information out there. But uh, anyway, I have a lot of fun with it. And the other thing that I enjoyed doing doing the maps with is um, getting people to volunteer information, which means that the community is involved in it. And I think for me, you know, it's one thing like I was talking about, the artist is kind of isolated and they're in the studio and they're kind of this, you know, this anxiety prone person. It's like, oh my guts and I have to lay it out. And I have to be so this and that. And I can't think of anybody else. It's all about me and how I'm feeling and, and that's all I can think about and you know and I guess that works for some people. But I found working with other people is a great a great thing and it's it's also makes them feel good and also you know if you can like acknowledge them as human beings, acknowledge them as artists, I think that's a valuable thing for an artist to do. Yes, I agree. And uh and that's what for, we're doing here. For people who would like to view your work. I do. You, I mean, there's. Is there? A, you can Google Lauren Monk and see his paintings of these maps and um, get a better idea of uh, of what they look like. Um, the way I describe them, I, I, I mean, they're some are some of them are very large scale and some of them are are medium size and. There's just a, a lot of, uh, when you look at them, they're fascinating to read. And uh, if you're especially interested in art history and all these like uh, origins and documentation of, of establishments and galleries and studios. Yes. Okay. At this point, this is when I say, you want to see the paintings? Go to www.laurenmonk.com. That's www.laurenmonk.com. It's not, it's not all of it's there, but most of it's there, and I keep trying to update things, and when we have shows and things, that, that usually gets put there as well, and there's also a link to most of the, the new YouTube videos, so there's a lot of stuff there. I post things on Instagram. I guess you could follow me at Lauren Monk Studio on Instagram, although I had, not only did I get my YouTube channel taken down, but I got my um, Instagram and my Facebook accounts hacked yeah. and I still haven't been able to get back on Facebook and on the other hand I'm thinking you know what I've been seeing about Facebook I I'm not missing it that much but it basically was kind of a way that I could reach out and contact my family and maybe try to get people to see some of the work or some of the ideas I was playing with but I am back on Instagram and I post things there occasionally so uh, was it last year when you had your show at Marlboro, Gall Marlboro Gallery on 25th Street? Well, it, it wasn't my show. I was uh, in the show. It, it was a fantastic show. It was actually curated by Raphael Rubenstein and Heather Rubenstein. Raphael is a fantastic, actually, a fantastic couple. Raphael has been one of the major art critics in New York City for, gosh, now I would say at least. 25, maybe 30 years. He also teaches down in Houston. Uh, he's written several books. He's a great poet. His wife is a fantastic artist. They also have a little gallery that they have um, 
I think it's out somewhere near the Delaware Water Gap. They sell some outsider art there, and he's usually in the outsider art fair. Anyway, he carried a show called The World's Diagram, and it was at Marlboro. It has a beautiful catalog, and I think he put about 40 or 45 artists in the show, and I was very, very fortunate to be in the show. And, maybe uh, it was a maybe it was before COVID when you had didn't you have a solo show in Chelsea was it it wasn't at Lion Year or no or no I well I haven't had a solo show in about six or seven years now mm -hmm. I'm I don't know I guess maybe it's got something to do with my demographic unit that I am in I I don't know <laughs> well I actually do know but I'm not going to say okay. uh, but I had a show. At this point, I guess it's about three years ago, at Zersher Gallery, and it was called on on the Bowery, and it was there were a couple of major maps in there, the Bowery maps, and uh, Gwendolyn Zersher actually did a great job. She called me the curator, but she's the the person that actually did all the footwork. She curated about again, I don't know. 40 or 50 people in the show, but they were all artists that had had studios on the Bowery or lived on the Bowery. And it was a fantastic show. So there was, there was Saul Witt, uh, Eva Hess, mm -hmm. Roy Lichtenstein. Uh, gosh, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, I got some pretty good publicity out of that. But it wasn't a one-man show. I was just one of the, I kind of used the map as the spine of the show. So yeah, that, but it was nice. It was nice. I ran into you, I guess, uh, three weeks ago at uh, the space in uh, in Chelsea again um, at um, Reed Stowe's um, space that was curated by. Oh you, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. That was a group show with Rick Prohl and Linus Caraggio and. That's Chris right. Robert it was Chambers called uh, OG something like mm -hmm. that. OG. Yeah. It was basically people that had survived the East Village through the eighties. And they're getting to be fewer and fewer of them as, as time goes by. Which was, uh, it was actually a, a very good show. And um, Reed Stowe and Maxine Hoover mm -hmm. curated it. And it was, kind of, it was good to get together with some of our old friends. Uh, so you experienced the art world in the '80s, and then there were, you know, the, yes. the Williamsburg scene happening. There was there was a sense of community in Williamsburg. Like we, yeah, it, there, yes, there was. It there was, was it was a fun time in the early like late '90s, early 2000s. And um, but do you feel that way in any particular? Anybody? Bushwick, I mean, in the last like 10 years, maybe. Or? Well, you know, I um, as I say, and I hate to say this because it's. A, Makes me sound like an old geezer, but I keep saying that, um, yeah, things were happening back and then. I don't know whether things – I actually do think things are happening now, but I think it's it's happening in a different way. Um, I think social media has changed the way that people form communities. It's not the same because you're basically just words on a screen, a lot of this. Um, however, you can if you – come in and spend time hanging around. And I guess maybe the new neighborhood is Trebekah. Lower East Side. There's, there's well, the Lower East Side is, is actually kind of quieting down a little bit. A lot of people are moving over to Trebekah. But the Lower East Side is still interesting. A lot of things happening around the Bowery and uh, below Canal Street. And if you know people, you do get out and you do have a kind of a, a community but I, you know, a lot of the young people, I don't know who they are. They won't talk to me. They say, well, that's not true. I actually will be in, in a gallery mm -hmm. and people will hear me talking and they'll like walk over and they'll go, are you James Calm? Mm -hmm. And I'll go, yeah. And they say, I recognize your voice because they've never mm -hmm. seen me on screen. So the only, the only James Calm they know is the voice of James Calm, which is part of my. Oh, yeah, it's true. That's yeah. part of my um, program when I came up with the concept of doing the Calm Report that I would never appear on screen. Although people are looking and they're going, I saw your reflection in, in the glass on one of those paintings. <laughs> anyway, but I think that there are communities, but I think it's a kind of, a, it's a different thing and it's less of a in real life community. Um, 
things have changed so much. I mean, with with art fairs and as you were saying, yes. social media and COVID, um, a whole yeah. lot of things. Oh my gosh, yeah, COVID really, of course, like everyone flocking to Instagram and trying to make uh, virtual spaces online and stuff. And um, but um, so in 2024, right now, I, I feels like there's a lot of like independent artists that are not really seeking representation so much. Maybe just like a lot of artists on Instagram, like all over the place. Like, I we might. So I think I read somewhere that we might even have like the most artists or people that, yeah, that are making art like in in like human history or something. I don't well, know. I would say that that's probably true. Matter of fact, I'm working on a painting titled something like. One of the 500 million pieces of art created this year. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's probably true. Um, but it also goes to, like I was saying, you know, you have a new, a new way of viewing mm -hmm. art, interacting with artists. But I think that there is a downside, a major downside to it. And I think that um, part of it is you just end up being so totally overwhelmed with stuff that you really can't see anything. We were talking also about the art fairs. You know, mm -hmm. and I I would say that there's probably, you know, when I started going to the art fairs, 2005, 2006, something like that, there were maybe, I don't know, three or four major art fairs mm -hmm. in the year. Now it's just like one art fair after the other, and I know that there are a lot of, People, particularly young dealers that are starting out trying to bankroll a little gallery and they feel like gee I've got to go to all these art fairs and um, boy you have one or two bad art fairs and whammo you are out of business because they're very expensive um, the fashions are changing so fast if you go to an art fair it's like I was walking to an art fair recently and just even if you're spending a couple of hours there but there's like 300 booths. That means you've got less than less than a minute to look at each booth, and, and generally you're not going to do that. You're going to like walk by, and probably 80 percent of the 85 percent of those booths you're going to give maybe 15 or 20 seconds to at the most, mm -hmm. and then the other ones maybe you'll spend a couple of minutes there and maybe stop and chat with somebody, but. Um, you're just so overwhelmed with all this stuff, and I think that that's one of the one of the downsides of what's what's happening with social media because it's so easy for people to pump out, you know, literally they can spam bot you with all kinds of stuff, and um, it's hard it's hard to uh, separate yeah. the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, there's an oversaturation, and a lot of people simply equate success with the amount of followers and likes that, uh, you know. Well, first of all, I think the real success is the money success, but the money brings the followers, the money brings the, the likes, the money brings these other things. I don't think, you know, there was a, an article, I think, in, I guess it was maybe it was hyperallergic mm -hmm. a month or two ago when someone was talking about, I got dinged by the most famous, arguably the most famous artist in the world, I'm going, Really? It's like this guy got Jeff Koons or somebody responded was like, no, I go in and I read this. And I'm going, okay, it's some like Alex Monopoly or something. Young, younger artist in the Bronx, his claim to fame that he was one of the subjects of a John Ahern sculpture. And maybe he hung out with John and worked because John did a whole bunch of characters in the Bronx. But this is 30, 40 years ago. And I, I looked at his paintings, and the paintings are okay. He's actually kind of, you know, I would call him a pretty good academic painter. But, you know, he's not... Um, what take about your pick. You know, the latest hot artist. Um, uh, Zoe, what's her name? Hel oh. Yeah, I can't think of her last name. Right. Anyway, you know, there's a lot of people that come and go, and um, but they're much more famous than this. But because he had... I don't know what, hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, he suddenly thought, you know, and look at his look at his auction records. You want to see who a hot artist is? Look at their auction records. If they haven't sold a painting for over a million dollars, eh. <laughs> Not that I'm in that category, but um, if we're talking realistically in the, in the New York art world, I think that's a pretty good um, standard to go by. Hmm. Um. 
what about uh, during the time of NFTs? Did you add, like did you ever for a split second think about no experimenting? No, 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 no I never. You know, same thing with cryptocurrency. Um, like I say, I've been around long enough to, you know, when you can smell this stuff, you can smell it. And um, the whole NFT thing, I just thought from the, the get-go, first of all, what the hell is it? You know, uh, if, if you can't understand what something is, do not invest in it. <laughs> okay. Do not spend your money on that stuff. Um, same thing with cryptocurrency. I actually sold a painting and part of the payment I got for it was in cryptocurrency and I don't know what the hell you know it's like I got twelve hundred dollars in Bitcoin five years ago four years ago mm -hmm. I don't know where it is I don't even know if it's worth anything these days probably not oh but you're wrong uh, you're wrong it's, well you had twelve hundred dollars five years ago maybe that was like 2017 Bitcoin was about 2500 back then well, so you I, had you, you probably have like 0.5 Bitcoin, which is like now twenty thousand dollars. Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel better. <laughs> you gotta find it. Yeah. yeah. I'll never find it. <laughs> I'll never find it. It's better as a, it's better as a legend than actually to have the money. But no, I, that that never tempted me. I'm very much a hands-on type of guy. That's why I like to be out on the bike, like I was this afternoon. I'm on my bike. I'm pedaling through the neighborhoods. I'm looking through windows of galleries. I'm seeing the people. I go into the, the gallery to interview an artist, John O'Connor. I shake his hand. We look at the paintings. We're talking about the paintings. People are there. They're coming in, out, coming out. You can look at them. You can taste them. You can smell them. It's good. You can touch them. Well, maybe you shouldn't touch them, but <laughs> so they're, most, they're humans. Most most of the time, I mean, when you visit spaces, most people are, are – are, Welcoming. I mean, you said with a few exceptions of some like some younger spaces or newer spaces. Or well, if it's not that they're not welcoming, I think one of the interesting things with me, because I've been doing the videos for so long, is that I have seen the change in people's attitude. For many years, uh, Gagosian would never let you video openly video in mm -hmm. the galleries. Okay. So I that didn't stop me because I have what I call the spy cam, and I kind of strap my camera around my chest and I would turn it on and I would just walk in there and you would you know you keep videoing as long as you can but I got a lot of interesting programs I mean some of my most popular programs were shows that theoretically were forbidden and um, can you, I, so have you been able to monetize from the YouTube videos I am never I never monetized that never was my intention to monetize I have my my children are saying, my wife is saying, gee, you should monetize. People are saying, you could have made hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't think so. I've, I've looked into it and I was, I mean, I guess if I wanted to flat out just design everything for monetization, I could. It's never been my desire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a, a different thing, which is I love art. I love artists. I want to bring the New York art world to a worldwide audience. If those, the people out there enjoy it, if they can learn something, if it kind of, um, adds to their art education. I get a lot of comments from schools and colleges all over the world that say, I assign your videos to my students. Mm -hmm. This is like supplemental um, courses that they're taking, and it's very important that you keep doing it, and that makes me happy. I would probably pay just to do that. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not in it to make money, although I'd, somewhere down the line, I guess the archives and something would be worth something, but I... I mean, ultimately, I would like him to go to a museum, but yeah. that'll never happen. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I mean, well, like Smithsonian, I don't know. Who knows? Well, like I said, I just happen to be in the wrong demographic group, you know, so it uh, doesn't matter what I do. You're, you know, you're... Going back to your paintings then, so um, I, they, you have, they have to be, they're oil. They're oil paintings. Yes, oil um, paintings. And, and you say sometimes it could take up to like four yep. years to make, five yep. years. Yeah, it's uh, how many map paintings do you have? Have you made? Oh gosh, um, dozens. Yeah, dozens. You think like a hundred? No, not a hundred. Uh, but I would say that I probably got at least a couple dozen good ones, and probably other ones that are smaller. And there are other versions, other versions of the map pieces that m might kind of not specifically be like straight maps. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. There's like circle circles, like kind of different diagram style. That's right. Um, I just recently completed one dealing with. It was actually a 1956 photograph of artists assembled in front of the Tanager Gallery, 1956. And it was a very famous photograph taken by a photographer for Life magazine. I can't remember his name, Paul Brimson, something like that. But I kind of did a black and white realistic painting of the photograph. And then on the other half of the canvas, because the the title of the show that these artists were in was artists working on 10th Street. So the other half of it is a little kind of a strip of 10th Street with the artists' names and their addresses on that street. Would that be Richard Serra too? Was he on there? Was, was no, the Richard Serra was or? not on there, but I think Richard Serra was on the Bowery for a little while. I think I, think I remember Vito Aconci was on the Bowery. Someone in the East, Vito Aconci, that, that, I think in the East Village, I believe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it wasn't Serra, it was Frank Stella? I don't know. Frank, yeah, Frank Stella? Stella? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, yeah, the texture of your paintings is... Uh, it's definitely noticeable. It's like, uh, I don't think I see much of the canvas showing. Like, it looks like a very thick application of, of paint. Is... Well, there is a lot of, there is a lot of paint. I, that's one of the things that I love about um, oil painting is that there's a certain sensuousness of the, uh, the paint. Also, because it's not plastic, because you're dealing with like organic matter, um, the oil from linseeds and linseed is what they make linen out of, um, flaxseed oil. Um, as it dries, it kind of changes and it, like a real thing. It withers and does various kind of things, which I find, I love it, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes to my thing of I like living things, I like humans, I like plants and animals and all that stuff. So, yeah, it does take a, a life on its own using that medium. And I think also there's a, there's a certain kind of a tradition in New York about the New York painters, and I don't know whether it's because New York was originally New Amsterdam and there's a whole school of painting that came out of Amsterdam, going back to Rembrandt, but going up to people like Van Gogh and some other people where they like they like the paint. And I feel like I'm part of that, so I you know I like to you know make the paintings and use a lot of paint color. And the, the font, um, do you hand <laughs> do you hand uh, create those the typeface or I I don't know if you call it typeface or font. <laughs> Either word. Um, I actually use projectors mm-hmm. to do that, but I do spend a lot of time studying various types of font and typefaces. I have some of my favorite typefaces that I use. Um, one of the interesting things about it, and I was over looking, talking to an artist this afternoon, and he uses a lot of typefaces and fonts, but I was saying that um, in certain ways that typeface where font is like a color in that if you've been reading a long time and you see posters and you see magazines and watch TV and you see text, there are certain kind of emotional responses that you get from certain types of typefaces. And um, I was a graphic designer for many years, designed posters for Idaho State University and other things. So I, I started to appreciate how you could call on these various things, and then when you add color and line and these other things to it, you can have an extremely rich um, emotional response to these things. And so I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about it. But I use a, I use a projector because it would be just too it would take too much time for me if I was down there trying to graph it all out. And also, I kind of like the way that um, taking things that are printed on a computer and trying to sort of splice them into a painting it does kind of give it another sense of reality. And as I said, I don't really like, well, let's say I'm suspicious of AI and I'm suspicious of high tech stuff, mm-hmm. but there does, there are some things that it's very useful for and, and I enjoy that. It makes it easier for me. saves a little time. So your, your palette is very vibrant and vivid. I, I, is there much mixing? Of paints, or is it straight out of the tube? No, no, I do a lot. Of, I do a lot of mixing, but yeah. as I said, um, the colors actually do have a lot of emotional responses, and so you know, you might want to have, say, a, an electric blue might be too much, so maybe you gray it down, you tint, tone, and shade those things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about being into diagrams 
and it's part of the mapping thing is that somebody comes up to you like you just said what is your like your color theory well okay i'm going to do a painting about color theory and so you start to go back and do research and the next thing you know it's like oh gee you know, all these great philosophers have these fantastic ideas about color. So I've got to take the time and basically study this and then try to distill it out to, to a point where I can actually take those things, boil them down to one or two sentences that I can put into a painting. And then you start to see how um, the evolution of knowledge has increased from, say, someone like Pythagoras up to Isaac Newton or some other more recent Joseph Albers, you know, all these people have theories about color, and mm -hmm. it's fa fascinating stuff. Fascinating. And uh, we're about, we're at 50 minutes now, so we're probably going to wrap things up. Sure, here. let's I'm, wrap it up. Go have a beer. <laughs> you did say, uh, I usually, I end with, you know, some like words of wisdom for other artists out there, but I think you already shared about, um, you know, being part of the community in whatever capacity you can, uh, be a attending shows or, or making your own kind of podcast or... Um, well, you've done it. You curate shows, yeah. go to people's studios. Making your own art space. You know, it's not... Yourself. That's right. And it's not about liking everything or thinking that everything is brilliant. I think a main part, and this is what I tell a lot of students, and I keep thinking about this to myself, you got to look at a lot of bad art. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, that's good. Looking at bad art is actually good. First of all, it teaches you what's good, what's bad. The other thing is over time you change because I saw things that I thought, oh, this is horrible, I hate this. And then as time goes by, you start to think, hey, you know what? That kind of is not so bad. And now that I see what they were trying to do, I didn't understand it, and now I, I like it. So that's that's part of the whole thing. So, you know, it's not just about good art. It's about bad art. It's about relationships and um, and art history and all that. All right. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your in insights into the art world and explaining uh, things about your paintings. And um, thanks, Noah Becker. For, yes, thanks, Noah. Uh, letting us conduct this interview. And um, everybody uh, have a great weekend. And uh, that's it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Lauren.